The Falling Middle Cast is a spin-off series from the creators of Mars on Life. This series provides review and commentary of Barbara Ehrenreich's Fear of Falling, The Inner Life of the Middle Class. Since this series analyzes the text and provides a critique on class in America, this is not a comprehensive audiobook and follows all copyright claims. Now, back to the show. Well, what an extraordinary moment this is. We're almost done with Fear of Falling. How Are does that we make finishing you... today? Uh, I mean, we're probably going to double up on recordings today, so I, I think we will be. Okay. We will be. We will be. Mm. Great. Um, so, but if anything, this is the start of episode, uh, Jesus, 16, I think. And then yeah. after, the, yeah, and I'm leaving this in so listeners know how we roll um kind of uh so it's up to you now just because looking at the table of contents once again we have a chapter start and four segments between two chapters left so and i want to make sure you read the last section of chapter six so right as of right now the war against softness is all yours (laughs) well you know i stay hard so it's about time we roll. The big difference is that young business and professional people work. The truly rich, like the courtiers who surrounded Nancy Reagan, do not work but drift easily from fashion show to award dinner, from winter townhouse to summer home, from one vaguely, quote, cultural entertainment to another. In other words, vapidity in its highest form. But those who wish to succeed in such richly remunerative remunerative fields as corporate law and finance banking must work, at least in their early years, 70 or so hours a week? 70 hours a week? Are you kidding me? Rookie numbers. You only work 70 hours a week? I work 80 hours at the ball-crushing factory. You liberals wouldn't know a good paycheck if it hit you. Um, (laughs) I love that meme. Most of those who merely wish to participate in the consumer binge must also work beyond the required eight hours a day. It's like things cost money. And those who only want to look as if they hold important positions in lucrative fields must at least look as if they are overworked. Work was essential to the yuppie style, not only as the means to wealth and hence indulgence, but as the moral antidote to indulgence. If one side of the yuppie style was conspicuous, status-oriented consumption, the other side was conspicuous and no less status-conscious work, or if not work, the appearance of work, even in leisure. Social commentator Benita Eisler had has described what she calls the, quote, new upper classes in America as the deserving rich because they work steadily and compulsively and have in the process been morally regenerated. Certainly the more affluent participants in the yuppie style fit this category. I mean, work gave them back the dignity they lost, if only subconsciously and spiritually, in the conformity of yuppie consumption. 
Newsweek described a 28-year-old Denver lawyer who had once studied to be a regional planner and whose life would surely have been simpler if he had pursued his original goal. He would like to marry someday, but he's in the yuppie bind of having to work hard to afford the kind of luxuries that make hard work possible. A sob. Vacations in the Orient. Carte blanche at all the top health clubs in town. He has a feeling that if he had to spend his leisure hours cleaning out the basement instead, his 12-hour days at the office his 12-hour days at the office would seem a lot less bearable. And in daily life, the hallmark of the yuppie style was a frenetic business. Traditional aristocracies are conspicuously idle. The upwardly mobile middle class was conspicuously busy. And those who wished to appear successful ordered their lives by their appointment books, budgeting even social interactions down to the minute. One of the young urban professional men interviewed in 1984, there's that year again, by my research assistant, Harriet Bernstein, boasted of having reduced the time it took for him to arrange his evening date to five minutes a day. And for most practitioners of the yuppie style, even courtship had to double with some equally worthy pastime, such as shopping, jogging, or eating dinner. The long three-martini business lunch of a previous generation gave way to briefer encounters, the business breakfast or the phone call by appointment. I feel like a lot of these, quote, business powwows over food really don't lend itself to a lot of business. It's more like rapport. And then once you're full and once you're subdued and once you're like, hey, mm -hmm. bought in by the gentleman or gentlewoman trying mm -hmm. to sell you something inevitably. Yeah, oh, we'll just sign it. We're tired. That's that's what I always like about. Um... That's how I've seen it in practice anyway. OK, well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's what I always like in succession where you know, people are coming together to make a deal. Ooh. Mm -hmm. And there's always food present. Of course. No one is ever eating the food. Oh, no, no. It's the opposite. Everyone's eating the food and they're not discussing, you know, or maybe it's like vaguely interspersed through conversation because, of course, they're eating. And mm. then at the end, it's more so a dynamic of, well, hey, I paid for your meal. The least you could do is sign what I have to give you. Because it's usually the businessman who's taking the client out for, you know, lunch. Yeah. It's never it's never the client offering to pay for the businessman. You know what I mean? So But it, I think also there there's something to it of multiple figures in business coming together for a meal and the meal's been paid for and it's been presented, but it never gets eaten either because the deal is being negotiated or you know, there's some kind of move about, you know, mm -hmm. sitting down and actually eating the meal or not eating the meal as, like, a tactic. I, I mean, there there's so many different anecdotes uh, to provide, but anyway. Uh, it, yes, the politics of food. <laughs> Naturally. Part of anyone... the deal in eating food, they are yeah. all intertwined. <laughs> Naturally, anyone who in the course of a day shops, jogs, holds down a demanding job and engages in eating... Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> that really narrows it down there. As a form of display, we'll feel pressed for time. See, there you go. Anyone who does all these things will try to sustain a courtship, or worse, raise a child will be frantic. To have time and attention for others is to concede their importance. 
the upwardly mobile professional rushing from one appointment or deadline to another concedes nothing to those who are less harried and hence obviously less important. Yeah, uh, a man really does feel at the center of his universe when he can look at a calendar and reaffirm himself that he's important because his calendar is stacked 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. to 5 p.m. I, I heard this like one term. I don't know what it is, but it's like it's like a praise kink, meaning you get yourself off from thinking that you have a lot to do and right. subsequently crossing things off your list as <laughs> if you've actually done something when really it's just part of the day job, you know. But mm. you feel as though you're part of the hustle by by doing so much. You can come home and and say to others that, hey, I did this, subtly flexing on others who haven't. Yeah, interesting. Huh. Yeah, get fucked. Uh, <laughs> if work was central to the yuppie search for uh, expiation, so too was the simulation of work. Exercise. In the 80s, exercise itself became a hopelessly generic term covering proliferating possibilities of exertion. Toning, aerobics, nautilus workouts, weight training, running, jogging, power walking, the quote fitness craze as trend watchers termed it, began in the late 70s and soon generated new products and booming new industries. Health spas and gyms, exercise classes and videotapes, home exercise equipment, fancy leotards and shoes specialized for running, aerobic dancing, and even walking. Have you ever seen a Richard Simmons workout tape? It'll kick your ass. Oh, believe me. You're you're talking to somebody that throughout my whole childhood, I was in the presence of both the, what is it, Billy Boot Camp and Jane Fonda 80s workout videos. Yeah, you know, uh, I think nowadays they have like insanity or Tai Bo or whatever. And oh, Tai Bo is like it'll do the job. Uh, although the craze drew recruits from all classes, it was centered in the upwardly mobile middle class. When quickly turned fitness or the effort to achieve it into another insignia of social rank, I love it. In the effort to achieve it, how many dusty ass Pelotons sit in middle aged women's living rooms? I ask mm-hmm. on this podcast. Mm-hmm. I mean, hell, hell, I'll be equal opportune. How many dusty uh, bench presses sit in the average Joe's garage? Yeah. Average Joe or average uh, guy that stares at stocks on his computer and thinks he's, uh, you know, the next yeah. Elon Musk. There you go. Like some people we've brought on the show. Of course. <laughs> and almost by definition, the true work or paid employment of this class does not involve physical exertion. Oh, no shit. Mm-hmm. In fact, exemption from manual label labor is the most ancient privilege of, quote, the mental worker from Village Scribe to Madison Avenue copywriter. He or she does not bend lift, scrub, shovel, haul, or engage in other potentially damaging exertions for a living. And freed from external command, the body becomes a seemingly autonomous realm, the one zone in which the mental worker feels entirely free to exert his or her own will. And within the scope of the body, particularly the musculature and digestive system, one is safe from the encroachments of meaningless work and joyless acquisition. Inner standards can be met, high goals achieved, all within this one small realm where discipline and purity still have their clear rewards. Yeah, I hate to break it to you there, big man, but as much as self-entitled financial gurus or really anyone with an Instagram reel worth a shit, 
that uh, promotes healthy living. When, when your torso moves at, you know, not equidistant to your head, I'm starting to think it's the steroids and not the gym equipment you've been hitting there, big man. Mm-hmm. Because if you're in a position as white collar as you say you are, mm, I, I think you're spending your money not on gym memberships there. God. In earlier decades, the middle class had also sought redemption through the body. Dieting became a middle class preoccupation in the 50s. It still is. And when it was linked to the rejection of suffocating mass marketed affluence. In the 70s, dieting was eclipsed by the new health consciousness, which operated as a kind of internal environmentalism. Toxins like cigarette smoke and liquor were to be avoided. Good foods, natural, unprocessed, usually vegetarian, and appallingly bland, could be indulged in quantity. And in many ways, both medical and cultural, high fiber became the designated antagonist of saturated fat, which is ironic considering a lot of health consciousness or health conscious endeavors Mm. are really just about, hey, we're going to be doing cleanses. Oh. Now, fiber, among many diuretics... Okay, is really all that's being advertised. Hey, how do we get the bad shit out of your body, right? Double fist a couple of shakes, right? I really don't understand how high fiber was the designated antagonist if it's meant to push out the bad, right? Yeah. Now, granted, if you're filling your body with even more bad shit, well, then it just that defeats the purpose right Mm -hmm. but i i wonder why they were antagonizing it fat was greasy and supine fiber dry and stiff it could be counted on to scrub the body's interior clean of lipogenous and toxic residues from the outer world what's the problem you may ask If you could not defend yourself against addictive consumerism or wanton industrialism, you could at least keep your body slim, detached, and clean. Provided you're not eating the foods uh, contained within this uh, consumerist, wanton industrialist society. Um, Yeah, good luck luck, uh, homesteading there. And in contrast to dieting and health foodism, fitness was exuberantly pro-capitalist. It accepted pollution, metaphorical and real except in the case of cigarette smoke, which remained a major middle-class concern, even a cause. It accepted consumerism. In fact, the pursuit of fitness could hardly be disentangled from the business of consumption. There had, of course, been diet foods and health foods, but it was not really necessary to spend more in order to get less, such as fat, calories, and additives. Diets and healthy eating could be pursued cheaply enough as alternatives to conventional consumption. But fitness was a commodity itself. From the health club membership, several hundred dollars a year for a well-equipped but unpretentious club to the shoes. Easily $100 for an impressive pair. If you're spending $100 on shoes, on fitness shoes, how does your colon smell? Because your hand's pretty far up there. To be fit in the fullest sense, which involved cardiovascular capacity, muscle tone, flexibility, strength, and a good amount of steroid use. Wait, no, that's not it. Uh, One had to spend money. One had to indulge. But this was a form of consumption in which indulgence was perfectly matched, second by second, with obvious visible effort. It was consumption made strenuous and morally renewing. 
working out as a balletic imitation of true work in which the hedonism of consumption could be confronted head on and vanquish and vanquished with the slow burn of pyruvic acid in the muscles and in the words of jane fonda no pain no gain and what was equally important the certainty that no gain would be made ex except through the redemption of pain yeah because when i see uh girls and guys on their snapchats posing in front of the mirror Doing the pose, you know the one. It's the workout couldn't have been that intense for you to be posing like that. Yeah. Okay. I understand that it's sort of in our nature as humans to showboat and to showcase that we are ideal candidates, whether it be for mating or fighting or God knows what else. And the internet has exacerbated that to such a fucking mm, point oh, yeah. that it just the workout can't be that bad if you get there and five minutes later you leave, but with ninety-seven more photos on your camera roll. Like I'm yeah. not I'm I'm not yeah. convinced there, you know. Oh my ass looks good. Yeah, it does. It does because you're showing it off and you're protruding it outward. Yeah, angles angles make all the difference there. Okay. Let me but let me it, just tell you. I believe in taking care of myself and a balanced diet and rigorous exercise routine. In the morning, if my face is a little puffy, I'll put on an ice pack while doing my stomach crunches. I can do a thousand now. After I remove the ice pack, I use a deep pore cleanser lotion. In the shower, I use a water-activated gel cleanser. Then a honey almost, uh, wow. Then a honey almond's body scrub. <laughs> and on the face, an exfoliating gel scrub. Then apply an herb mint facial mask, which I leave on for 10 minutes while I prepare the rest of my routine. I always use an alternative lotion with little or no alcohol, because alcohol dries your face out and makes you look older. Then moisturizer. Then an anti-aging eye balm, followed by a final moisturizing protective lotion. There is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real time. Only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze, you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours. And maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable. I simply am not there. You know, if you would have read that as if it was Patrick Bateman reading it, I would have been like, oh, you know, you've touched a nerve. But because you read it like it was Ben Shapiro. Um, no, I did not. <laughs> you read it pretty fast, I gotta say. Well, it's because we got reading to do, my guy. Like... <laughs> In a practical way, too, the fitness craze balanced the extravagant oral indulgence of upscale middle-class life. The dieters of the past had not eaten or had eaten only tasteless, punitive substances such as cottage cheese, disgusting, and dry toast. Novelle cuisine, with its tiny portions of blanched vegetables and fish, provided continuity with earlier concerns about body weight and purity. It's almost as if you eat less you don't gain weight whereas if you eat more more than your caloric in intake you gain weight it's it's as if diet makes up a substantial portion of it but after novel cuisine faded food lost its moorings in nutrition and its ancient links to health Food became edible status, and since symbols of status are all too quickly publicized through television, food, be 
Food became fad, nimbly outrunning the tastes of the masses. From austere novel cuisine to thick, creamy sauces, from continental-style foods to the, quote, new American cuisine. From fancy to Tex-Mex. From the exotic to meatloaf. And and, And dieters were not welcome at this feast. Of course not, because they wouldn't eat it. The only way to keep ahead, to eat significantly, impressively, competitively, was to keep in shape. If fitness was consumption, it was also penance. A continual balancing of calories ingested with calories expended. God, I am just raking in the tally marks on this for just Mm -hmm. jumping the gun here. A socially acceptable equivalent of bulimia. (laughs) Which I'm sure still happened even back then. But fitness not only looked backward at the last meal, it looked ahead to the next. Fitness literature emphasized that regular strenuous exercise made for a more manageable appetite and efficient metabolism. Ah, yes, fitness literature, a subset of the self-help that is equally deplorable yep, and can be found on every single bookshelf in any major thrift store. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah, it really must work. Yeah. In a very real sense, eating was what one got in shape for. The fit could eat more without the usual depressing, frumpy, and of course, downscale results. And in a society that associates obesity with gluttony, the fit are also permitted to eat more without exciting disgust. But the fitness craze was not solely penance. The mental-slash-manual division of labor is hurtful to those who must sit, as well as to those who must lift and strain for a living. Almost as if... Almost as if there's a correlation between people who exercise for work, i.e. doing manual labor, and those who sit and don't do manual labor and thus do not burn off that caloric intake. Hmm. I'm sorry. I'm starting to see a bit of a dichotomy here, but um, I'll shut up and we'll just keep on reading. Ordinarily, oh no, I'm sorry, for young office workers, exercise was not only simulated work, but simulated play. Ordinarily, only children are permitted to move their bodies freely and vigorously in public. The regimented exercise class, the clothes that distinguish a runner from a fugitive, and the cruel resistance of a Nautilus machine, all these things allow adults to regain the lost muscular license of childhood. And for a generation that had all too early renounced the dreams of youth for the sober detail of the balance sheet, fitness was fun, a covert extension of childhood. Fitness, or the effort to achieve it, was also instrumental to grown-up purposes. It quickly became, like tastes in food, another class cue. Being fit in the fullest sense was a proof of having money, and beyond that, almost certain proof that one had not earned that money through manual labor or muscular exertion. Even though manual labor or muscular exertion would probably see you getting fit all the same, depending on what your job was. You ever notice why the majority of grunt Marines are ridiculously fit? It's because they do manually exerting tasks Mm -hmm. in line with their job. So... Did, did correlation just just leave the chat altogether here or man that that causation's really sounding a lot like correlation oh <clears throat> it's not a strike against Aaron Reich I, I know deep down she's she's writing this with a sardonic tone but it makes me wonder how many people like it just goes over their heads you know yeah it's why these diet plans or these faux diet plans or these like oh get in shape without the exercise fads work. 
It's because it panders to the lowest common denominator who thinks that by not working, you're going to achieve the same result. Right. And it's why so many of these are just segregated to like infomercial time blocks because it's like nobody in their right mind would would believe it. Like these dietary fads. It's like, oh, lose five to ten pounds with a simple pill. Like when when has that ever worked? We keep thinking it will. We keep yeah. thinking, oh, we have the pill for it. But honestly, you know what? If a I have yet to see like, it. Here's the thing. If they were to come out and say, hey, this pill is going to make you lose 5 to 10 pounds. You know why it's going to make you lose 5 to 10 pounds? Because it's going to stave off your appetite. Yeah. If you were to publish that, you'd have people coming out of the woodwork being like, but I still want to eat. That's unhealthy. That's an unhealthy behavior. Not knowing that shit you know counting your calories is kind of a foolproof way to know what you need and what you don't and whether or not you're gonna go over or under and thereby track how much weight you intend to lose or gain yeah so yes a lot of these unhealthy lifestyles in terms of working out and fitness is it unhealthy or is it is it science really uh hmm Finally, there was the observable goal of fitness. Dieters sought thinness. Weightlifters, who were often of dubious background of <laughs> dubious background and occupation, sought the menace of bulk. See, here's where the jarhead is going to come out in me and say, oh, I bet you Barbara Ehrenreich couldn't even bench press her own body weight. <laughs> you can't lift? Loser. I'm kidding. I, I could quote Arnold, but yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Anyway, oh man, but those of milk but is for babies. Come on, milk is but for those babies. who pursued fitness aimed at a new kind of outcome known as definition. The outline of the body had to become more clearly enunciated in hard, though not exaggerated, curves of muscle. For women as well as men, the standard of beauty moved away from mere slimness. Legs that were too thin could be as unsightly as legs that were too fat. Beauty lay in the clear line of muscle, precisely nurtured by the right balance of toning, weight training, and aerobics. To achieve definition was to present a hard outline to the world, a projection of self that was not sensitive and receptive, as therapies in the 70s had aimed at, but tough and contained. Definition offered proof that one could hold one's own against the encroaching hedonism, that one could eat, gorge, binge, without the horror of dissolving into softness. Amen, brother. That section of that chapter is key in understanding the whole fitness craze that we've honestly been through consistently, constantly, nonstop since the 80s. Like, it has not oh, ended. Of course. And on top of that, it still dictates this idea that if you work out and you're toned in some way, you're part of this, like, upper-middle-class echelon, even if you're coming from a working-class background. And it's like, yeah. you could still be toned and fit and be working-class, but the idea that people have that, oh, if I have this kind of job and this kind of workout and I have this kind of body and I attract this kind of person and the person I'm attracted to comes from a similar, I don't know, mm -hmm. aesthetic and work background as, I do, as I'm coming from, then, oh, it all... It all comes together and we're all just one big happy business. You know, even it though it couldn't have it, yeah. it couldn't just stop at people working out. We're really Yeah. If you think about it, should be the defining factor in individuality. 
you had to equate it to something like money or status or whatever. Whereas you go in the gym, you are not going to see anyone who looks alike from one another, you know? Right. And I say that because individuals have their own workout routine and they have, they have things that work out for them. Muscle, you know, strength exercises and aerobics or hell, where do you see two people doing the same exercise, achieving the same results? Right. That doesn't happen. Because guess what? Everyone's body is different. And whether or not you want to train a particular part of your body, i.e. arms, legs, chest, uh, torso, ab, you know, whatever, you're not going to achieve it the same way as another individual simply because of your background or of your status. Mm. Only way you're going to do that is if you understand how the gym works out for you and adhering to a strict disciplining schedule to do it. Yeah. And really, any other individuals should not even factor into the equation, which is mm -hmm. why I, I can't stand the exacerbation of, you know, fitness gurus and shit like that on the internet because, oh, you want to look like me? You, you just got to go for it. I mean, think of it in terms of to the richest people in the world and how they maintain any kind of physique. And how people look up to them. Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. Jeff yeah, Bezos. Yeah, the tutelage. The absolute tutelage of bodybuilding working out-ism. Yeah. Have you seen these individuals without their shirts on? Bezos. That's the you want to go for? <laughs> Bezos is fit, though. That's the creepy part. Even though, okay, you, you even though his one. face is like this and he's yeah, turning into the one, crazy cat lady. Because Musk is not that at all. Musk is not. Musk is yeah. like a shit brick house. Yeah. Oh, but I'm a uh, but I'm a billionaire. That makes it okay. And it's like, okay, do you see where the logic kind of stops and the the bullshit begins? You know, it's like now you're allowing status to justify lack of health. It's the tale as old as time. Like, oh, I'm rich, therefore. I can do what I want. I can, I can treat do what my I body want. the way. Yeah. Therefore, everyone will be attracted to me merely because of my fame and wealth and genius. I right. don't need to look like James Bond. I could just, you know, LARP around and be a big fucking porpoise. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I, again, I'm talking about Elon Musk. I'm not talking about anyone else here. But, but at the same time, it is that kind of idea of, well... You know, oh, it's it's not about his looks. It's about his. Uh, it's about his ideas. You know, yeah. his, his checkbook, his wallet, and in Elon Musk's case, it's like, yeah, he thinks he could get whoever he wants, but that's also because, again, he is one of the more, if not the one of one of the richest people in the world, despite the fact that he's a fucking idiot. Um, hmm. But again, rich has clout for some reason. Now. Yuppie guilt. Ooh. The term yuppie disappeared from the media almost as swiftly as it had appeared. In 1986, the editor of a major monthly magazine told me she found the term tiresome and never wanted to hear it again. Well, it's too bad, because there was a movie about a yuppie in the late 90s slash early 2000s that people like. And it's a good movie. Uh, apparently, many other editors felt the same way. And editors are in a position to uh, to decide which words the rest of us will hear 
or at least C. In England, the editor of the Daily Telegraph ordered a, quote, complete ban on the word itself. The rise and fall of the word could be followed in the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature, which listed 19 entries under yuppies in 1984. For 1985, there were 26 entries. By 1987, the number of entries had sunk back to 19. Today, the term is out of style as nouvelle cuisine and sushi. <laughs> the yuppie food fads, which fa uh, faded in the mid-80s, to be replaced by hardy or fair. Other groups have seen their stereotypes stick for decades. Not so the middle class, which was able to take the first clear caricature to, uh, to come its way and render that caricature useless as cliché. For the professional middle class, which had both coined the term and then retracted it, the lifespan of the yuppie label represented a moment of unaccustomed self-exposure. A 1985 Roper poll found that 60% of adult Americans knew what yuppies were, compared, for example, to the other 34% who could name the, uh, the Secretary of State. Shit, who was the Secretary of State at that time? Well, it looks like we know uh, what percentage you belong to. I know, Honestly, I don't know, because I, I can't even think of it. Shoot. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, was it? No, she was Clinton. Anyway... Uh, no other term describing the educated middle class in whole or part had ever earned such widespread usage. The new class, for all that it exercised the new right, remained a recondite notion, and even its more colloquial versions, like liberal elite, never managed to conjure up a clear and definite imagery. In the Roper poll, the great majority found yuppies, quote, overly concerned with themselves. In a 1987 Newsweek poll, <laughs> as, as Sebastian takes uh, oh. his head and presses on his sinuses. Uh, no, really? <laughs> wow, I was sensing a bit of conceit, but uh, I, don't, I don't know. Way to hit the nail on the head, Aaron Reich. Oh, yeah. In a 1987 Newsweek poll, yuppies placed third among things the respondents said were losing favor. Stockbrokers placed second beaten only narrowly by drugs. Not that the media coverage had been all bad, at least not until the stock market crash of November 1987, for which yuppies were unfairly blamed. Not Ronald Reagan. Uh, Newsweek's cover story had found yuppies an energetic, sober lot, and only occasionally lapsed into sarcasm, as in this description of yuppie courtship. It's important to know that someone shares your taste in tableware, and it's better if you both jog than if one of you bikes instead. <laughs> what? I mean, this goes back to conversations I know we've had in the past of like, I, I would have... It would have been such a love-hate relationship living in the 80s for me. I mean, but then again, it's a lot like now, where there just, is arguably a lot can't... to like, but still overwhelming amount to despise but i just can't imagine these people thinking that they're at the center of their own universe talking like that right you know what i mean this is what you perceive as important maybe i can try to empathize here right okay. i guess when you're not the ubermensch of the ubermensch of the upper middle class or even the the top one percent and <laughs> the world isn't as big of a playground as your more elite counterparts these things are seen as little things like the little luxuries yeah if you're trying to 
emulate maybe the habits of the wealthy. Oh, let's concern ourselves with tableware. Let's uh, concern ourselves with jogging or bike riding. Let's try to spend our way into a higher status. That doesn't make sense at all. It's just a vapid lifestyle that why would you ever live it? But then again, if your whole life is just circling around you know the the, the showboatedness of it all then i was gonna say you don't have a lot to lose but you actually do have a lot to lose because if you don't match up with your equally middle to upper middle class counterparts fighting for that clout or living vicariously through their children or maybe their pets or what have you you know basically trying to keep up with the joneses mm. yeah you got a lot to lose because then you're just you're just second to none Meanwhile, the elite are just laughing all the way to the bank because they're realizing, oh, these individuals can just think that they can spend their way into a better life. That's literally what's happening today. It's it's moronic. <clears throat> I mean, all all of the all of the I'll sanitize it a little bit, but all of the people that lick Elon Musk's boot because they want to be like him, he's laughing at them. Same goes yeah. with all the Andrew Tate cultists out there like he's laughing at them because it's a bunch of pasty neckbeards that think they're going to be this ultra uh what would ultra you do? alpha male when in reality it's like yeah. no you're no better than the gamer guy from south park what would you do if you were to achieve that level of wealth and status as musk tate those that you idolize that is the question that i would like to propose for these insane cultists because yeah. it's literally a matter of you think that you can do it better yeah these individuals have achieved levels of fame and notoriety that they already so didn't deserve unequivocally matched and, and yeah undeserving what makes you think you could do it better yeah. or you want to be on the same playing field as him Aiden i hate to Ross. break it. i hate it i hate to break it to you there but you do realize that once you do hypothetically achieve that rank, these people are only going to vilify you more. These people are only going to see you more as a threat. And I guess in the era of capitalism where everything is just a fucking pissing contest, you mean to tell me that these people are going to be forthcoming and be willing to share their trade secrets and their social circle with you? Yeah, okay. Those who are going to bootlick their way to the top, and then once they get there, you think that you're just going to have an immediate seat at the table? I, I agree with all that, except I don't think these people at the top would consider these aspiring people to the top as a threat, or... I would say so. I mean, okay. if you have people, if you have more people <clears throat> dominating in an industry, and you have someone who, I guess, hypothetically would be Elon Musk too, mm -hmm. wouldn't that cause more of like a oh shoot this is actually someone to look out for because these billionaires make their money off of the delusions of grandeurs yeah that people have i mean i know i know tate does yeah i mean so I... what would happen if one were to break the mold and essentially be like oh hey now i've done it how would these individuals react oh shoot someone I guess if in Tate's words, oh, they really broke out of the Matrix. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, I think the only reason why I bring that up is that I, I think everything else he said was 
100% on point. I only question that part simply because I think, obviously for right now, we really haven't seen anyone come close Achieve to any that of these level. people. We've right. just seen imitators. You know, mm -hmm. a good example of which I, I jokingly mentioned his name, but he is the perfect imitator because he is the ultimate bootlicker of Andrew Tate's, but Aiden Ross. Like, mm -hmm. the guy is just some you know forgive me i don't remember how old he is but roughly mid-20s youtuber that thinks growing a a beard adjacent and shaving his head in solidarity with um the bald the balded one who by the way would have been bald regardless of the shaving just want to say uh, um i mean believe me i i i saw what he looked like when he got out of jail in Europe, and I thought, wow, this is literally the episode of Seinfeld where there's the one guy who was always shaving his head, and then he let it grow, and then he realized he was going bald, so who does he go to? George. And George is like, once the enemy crosses this perimeter, and, and the guy's like, what will I become? And George just points, just goes, and the guy goes, oh, what do I do about it? And George is like, live, damn it! Live! And these idiots think, oh, I could be like him, but at the same time, what are they doing that's anything equivalent to them? But also, even if they think they're doing anything equivalent to that person, they're, they're just a fanboy at the end of the day. Right. So at this point, I, I look at it like, yeah, the cultists are out there, but none of them can come close to whatever these phonies... And I'm not quoting Holden Caulfield. I'm quoting Bruce Wayne when I say that um, mm. from Batman Begins. <laughs> you know, like like following these phonies, thinking, "Oh, I could be just like this rich asshole." What have you done? Like, yeah, the question should be, "What have they done?" Like, what has Elon actually done? But what have you done that makes you think you're like Elon? Other than you tweet and you've tweeted at him, and all he can do is tweet back. Interesting. If we're just going based on sort of the stereotype of a cult, and I'm using that as an example, the, the Manson family as an example, like, yeah, don't be, um, don't be one of Manson's girls, you know, do, be your own person on the topic of masculinity, and I think we've had this conversation before, but, you know, I'm one of those people where I'm, I, I, I am definitely a product of watching and being subjected to other young boys and men act like they were alpha and put me down because I was so different. Mm. And it got to the point where it's like, you know what? I am totally comfortable with my flamboyant nature and also my own masculinity where I don't feel like it ever should be questioned. I don't feel like it, it's anything that anyone should ever build. Anyone should ever feel threatened by. And also the fact that yes, I am, a cisgender white man, mm -hmm. but I don't flaunt it as if it's some kind of endangered species. If anything, it's like, no, I'm, I am who I am, and right. who I am is somebody worth adding to your cause or collection or whatever. Like, I'm not, it's not, a, if anything, it's, I will not quote Batman Begins again, but it's <laughs> the fact that, like, you know, it, it's it's not about my identity. It's not about 
anything like that. But what I can contribute, what I can provide, who I can be as a person better than what's expected of me in society, that is what I'm, I am known for. Yeah. And that is what contributes to all the causes that I do support. It is not the fact that, oh, well, you know, we got to have our token whitey. Like, no, it's not. It's never like that. <laughs> it's it's our token cracker. It's quite literally, no, I'm there with you through and through. And if you need an authoritative voice, that's what I'm here for. But also, I'm not going to be so authorit uh, authoritative to the point where I do come off as Mr. White Alpha Male. Because that's not who I am. You know, I, but I'm also, but if also people want to, you know, chastise me, you know, yeah, it's a different world now, but back in the day, my flamboyancy was always, uh, criticized to the point of homophobia. And I would be like, um, I am straight, but fuck you for being homophobic. Like, like, there's no other way I can put it. Fuck you. And, and, and then that would also lump into anti-Semitism, which I also have to say resoundingly fuck you. But, you know, this idea that that's what's needed to be the ultimate male professional managerial class representative, it's like, no, you could be better than that. Uh, Jesus, where were we? Uh, um, by and large. By and large. Of, yeah. <clears throat> by and large, the tone of the early coverage was that yuppies, with their predictable obsessions <laughs> with food, money, and fitness, were cute. No, they weren't. I love that. I love that. And they that... were chuggy at best. <laughs> well, she's she's being she's putting the context to it. She's not saying, "Oh, it was indeed cute," you know. No, no, I I know, but like, yeah, no, Harvard, I know what you mean. But like, come on, like, like, speak out to the people who think this is bullshit because it is bullshit. Okay, yeah. like that. It, say what it is. Like, say what you mean to say. Say what you mean to say. <laughs> you know, cute. I get it. I get that she's saying it in like a a derogatory term, but it's just like, no, say it's moronic. Say it's asinine. But take the money away from these people, please. But if you're thinking about think about it within the context of, you know, it's Reagan's America. It it's good morning in America. Like it, it's it, it is yeah, quite... it's good. Okay, yeah, it's good morning in America. It's not the people that make it a good morning, though. With these, no, habits, it is though. That's the no. problem. If it's if we're talking Reaganism, it totally is. It literally is this idea that we are making America great again, like it was in the fifties. Only it's nineteen eighty. That like, is stupid. With these habits, that is. I know, but hey, one hundred percent. That's the problem. Asset. You you want you want the economic. Um, stability of the 50s repeated this is it then like unfortunately this is what you get <laughs> this is what we got is what i yeah this say. is what we got this is what we got um so and that may be what hurt the most the idea that the professional middle class or at least some significant segment of it could be so easily labeled and patronized other people occupied definable social classes, and these classes could be readily caricatured as welfare mothers or hard hats. But the middle class still fancies itself a set of self-determining individuals, not a group driven by common interests and instincts. Probably very few people, hey, page 300, baby, uh, probably very few people read about yuppies and thought, oh my god, that's me. 
but many in the middle class could see some part of themselves, some emerging constellation of tastes for coarse grain mustard, linen suits, or frequent workouts, and realize that they themselves had been labeled, caricatured, and fingered as part of some larger conformity emanating from beyond their individual will and judgment. Again, I repeat, Sebastian, my good boy, it's morning in America. It hurt even more that this pattern of conformity could be almost entirely defined by material goods, purchases, brand names. A half-indulgent, half-mocking article in Metropolitan Home offered a simple quiz to determine whether the reader was a yuppie. Oh, no, please. Go ahead. Oh, I will. Uh, I'm just getting the voice ready. Do you currently own or covet a BMW, Saab, Volvo, or Mercedes, okay, no. a Krupp's coffee maker, Braun juicer, or tell you, wow, what the fuck? Yeah, this is a product of its time. Or Terion Kitchen Scale. <laughs> Anything designed by Perry Ellis, Ralph Lauren, Issy Miyake, Marona Sport, Calvin Klein, or L.L. Bean. Canned pate for a real emergency. The unpleasant implication was that things had more power than one knew. The power to speak for one, to announce one's social name or type. This is chapter one all over again. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's buy things and elevate uh, uh, elevate to a certain status, but you're not elevating it. You yeah. are mirroring the wealthy. But I don't even think the wealthy would own this. Quite literally, it, it is it, what that one Dalek said in season one of Doctor Who with Christopher Eccleston. Uh, -huh. uh Elevate! There were defensive reactions to what was quickly denounced as yuppie bashing. My self-described young urban professional writer in the New Republic, which normally set somewhat higher standards for invective, was reduced to calling the Newsweek cover story on yuppies ultra stupid, and asking rhetorically whether we are quote possibly talking here about the worst cover story of the decade. Man, I wish more news articles nowadays were like that. Anyway, oh, man. just magazine articles. I think I found my career. Are you kidding me? Oh, good lord. Oh, God, to be a self-proclaimed uh, critic? Yeah. Yeah, just talking about yuppies being ultra stupid. It's, you can get paid for it. Life could be a dream. Uh, a writer in Glamour complained that as a result of the, quote, negative assessment of yuppies, a growing number of my peers feel compelled to apologize for their lifestyles. Yuppies were not as materialistic as they had been depicted, she insisted. Citing the example of a young New York attorney who had taken a pay cut so that he could now work two days a week at a, quote, Center for Spiritual Growth. For such excursions from the life of getting and spending should hardly be necessary. Isn't it time, she asked, to stop putting ourselves down for being what we are? People who have usually earned the right to enjoy a few material comforts? No. No, because... It's one thing to enjoy those material comforts. Mm. Uh, is there a name for this individual? No. Susan? She sounds like a Susan to me. <laughs> Listen, well, Susan. she's a Rebecca. Re or a Sabrina. Becky? Oh, that's a good one. Okay, Becky. I'll challenge you on that. <laughs> it's one thing. See, you don't have the advent of the internet. 
meaning you can't showboat what you have and what you don't or what you want or what you will have or what you'll manifest into the fucking future, okay? Of course, people earn the right to do things. It's your money. You worked for it. You should be able to pay for whatever you want. The problem is, is that when you purvey a culture of spending and you deem that spending necessary for the common good when it outright isn't, and it's only to bolster your socioeconomic status, I don't think that's a good habit to have, Becky. Mm -hmm. I think that it's very vapid in nature. I think that you are bad with your money. I think that if you really wanted to emulate the rich, maybe you would go so far as to, I don't know, put it back into the economy, not by spending, but perhaps by investing and saving. A few material comforts. Yeah, I have some of those. Do I let it define my personality? Absolutely not, because I refuse to buy things when they're new. Mm -hmm. Because that would be stupid. I would rather savor what I have because they're not broken. They're not in need of fixing. I think I still have my PS4 from five fucking years ago. That maybe is a bit slower, is definitely not newest generation, but is certainly a material comfort. Now, if you can stomach that, Becky, that someone would be so happy and so content with living their life as they enjoy living it, not letting materials dictate their their socioeconomic status now careful becky because i think your head would explode here in finding out that i don't have the newest and greatest uh you know things on the market some of the coverage of yuppies had the quality of a debate and indeed there were more than one like this one there was more than one vantage point within the class that produced the yuppie style older people that is people born before 1945 resented yuppies for their youth for their refusal to follow the usual arduous path to middle-class membership. Quote, they have no concept that you ought to spend your younger years scraping along and saving, a middle-aged economist remarked to me. They want to start life with everything their parents had in middle age, only more of it. There was even deeper resentment from those elements of the professional middle class who had not followed the yuppie strategy. To those who remain in such... Uh, in such traditional middle-class occupations as teaching, research, and journalism, yuppies were an abomination, like a younger brother turned criminal. Roman Roy. Uh, the harshest anti-yuppie sentiments I heard were not from blue-collar workers, but from a group of Midwestern college teachers still earning sub-yuppie salaries of around $30,000 a year. But in the end, there was no real debate. The yuppie style was an embarrassment, even to its most ardent practitioners. It was too conformist, too anxiety-ridden, and in an America increasingly polarized by class, not even cute. In the years of yuppie excess, the poor had become visibly, uh, visible again. It is a sad testimony to the middle-class solipsism of the 80s that the poor had literally to go outdoors to make their presence known. The homeless, who captured media attention in the middle of the decade, are not a special breed, as they are sometimes presented, but only the unluckiest of the poor. Their own homes had been torn down, or renovated and gentrified, L.A., to make room for the rising corporate administrative... Worcester. Uh, corporate administrative stratum represented by the yuppies. 
or they had been driven out by skyrocketing real estate prices, aforementioned cities, bidded up by the rich and nearly rich. The homeless stood, literally, on so many city streets as a shocking refutation of the ongoing consumer binge, the other side of the story. Imagine someone like Becky <laughs> adopting these habits. And again, I didn't want to speak too much on it because I knew that the book was already going to do it for me. Not bothering to see the other perspective. So thank you, Barbara, for pointing out yet another problem with what, what you know, just enjoy things. No. There was also something exhausting about the yuppie way of life, with its neurotic layering of, quote, compensatory spending, excuse me, compensatory spending, and compensatory suffering. The strategy had been to renounce the usual prerequisites of middle-class life, an interesting, prestigious profession at a middling income for quick money. But the strategy necessitated the style. The loss of an intrinsically rewarding profession had to be compensated for by strenuous consumption, and the strenuous consumption had to be compensated for by equally strenuous exertion. Five-mile runs, 90-minute workouts. The middle class does not make large amounts of money easily or endure their effects with a clear conscience and glad heart. It would have been easier and more satisfying, as many college students may now be beginning to see, to be a, quote, poor social worker or regional planner and achieve at least the traditional dignity of the middle class professions. No small part of that dignity derives from the intellectual commitment, no matter how attenuated or pretentious of the middle class. It is, after all, the professional middle class that concerns us here, people whose bid for comfort and respect is based on their claims to some special knowledge. And again, this applies to literally anyone who works in fields of science, uh, teaching, education, journalism, but the yuppie style was totally indifferent so, to that tradition. It had its own system of snobbery. Not books and theater, but food and restaurants. And the so the house of cards falls. Mm -hmm. uh, with a workday devotion to the bottom line and a leisure life divided between consumption and penance, the yuppie style was, to borrow a yuppie word, ultra stupid. In an article titled, Confessions of a Reluctant Yuppie, Peter Baida, a young hospital administrator, related the following story. A couple of years ago, my wife and I gave what might be called a yuppie dinner party. All six of our guests were young professionals with degrees in law or business from top tank, uh, wow, top tanked, top ranked schools. At one point, I mentioned that my wife recently had finished reading Proust and that now I had begun. Who is Proust? One of our guests asked. I thought someone else would answer, but all eyes turned toward me. Suddenly I realized that not one of our guests knew who Proust was. Now, I vividly remember this from the very first Chapo episode I ever listened to, and it's it's by some of the fans it's considered one of one of the best and one of the favorites, and it's the one about uh and I think I I once forwarded it to you when I first explained what the podcast was about and it was their episode about ben shapiro's book um about like the west and he goes on about jerusalem and athens etc and it basically breaks down this whole idea of how 
you can make it in America if you've done this, if you've kissed enough wasp ass in your life, um, if you've gotten yourself in all the right circles, and most importantly, well, maybe not most importantly, but definitely important, read enough of the literature, shall we say. And one of the co-hosts brought up the point how she was at some kind of dinner party where it was basically brought down to her that, you know, you're you're at a dinner party. You're not at something that is so harebrained as a college lecture amongst other quote-unquote intellectuals. And basically, the gist that she walked away with was, yeah, this person may have had all these books on their shelves and may have done X, Y, and Z with said books, but ultimately... And this is definitely not something I ever aspire to be, despite all the books that I've... All the book titles that I've dropped all across the many episodes of Mars on Life and its miniseries, plural. Um, it's basically this idea that you can be this rich, smarmy, maybe liberal, maybe conservative uh, asshat, but you can only be so based on what you've read. Or at the very least, you have to have enough of a library to substitute or explain for who and what you are. And frankly, you do see it every time you watch the news. And you, I mean, this became all the more apparent post-COVID when everyone was zooming in to the studio. Um, where it seemed like everybody had the same 50 books. And you're like, okay, there is no freaking way uh, such and such think tank asshole read all four volumes of Robert Caro's uh, so far uncompleted, and boy, I hope he completes it because he's getting up there, uh, his so far four volumes on of like, you know, definitely well over a couple thousand pages about the political career of Lyndon Baines Johnson. Honestly, the same goes for Rick Perlstein's books, even though they are phenomenal, and everyone should read every single page of them, as I have. Okay, maybe not as I have, because I've definitely skipped at least one of those books, but still. It's this idea that you don't need to actually live the lifestyle, despite what is being exhibited on screen. You don't have to. And this is why, as much as people say to me, oh, you gotta read this, you gotta read that, I'm like, eh, I don't need to. Because I'm not that asshole, and I'm also not that asshole who pretends, either. If it's not taken seriously, and if it's not something that actually promotes subs uh, substantial change in America, I ask, what's the point? No doubt they knew what Brie was, or Pesto, or Chardonnay, but this, quote, reluctant yuppie had expected the dinner table conversation to rise above the level of the dinnerware and what was on it. I don't hate yuppies, he concluded, affirming that he himself was, quote, right to go to business school. But, quote, they, we, make me sad. The stock market crash of 1987 did not spell the end of yuppiedom, or, as some excited commenters believed, the end of the world as we knew it. Uh, or rather, to say it like Peter Capaldi deliberately quoting R.E.M., the end of the world as we knew it. Uh, consumer binge continues, though with less fanfare and more restrained advertising. Oh, at last. On campuses, young people, young men, were still shelving their more idealistic aspirations for careers of corporate servitude, 
uh, or self-seeking entrepreneurship. Okay, so that that's two. Okay, we're, we're on a good path here. Though in slightly fewer numbers than before. Mm. On downtown streets, young people in expensive clothes still stroll on mild evenings, talking of leverage buyouts and good things to eat. Sounds like Cambridge. But the, uh, but the crash did signal a turning point in middle-class consciousness. A moment of revulsion, however fleeting, against the materialism and greed now localized in, quote, yuppies. A few months after the crash, Newsweek, which had practically defined yuppies in its 1984 cover story, announced that they were now in disgrace. More decisively, the Wall Street Journal declared that, quote, conspicuous consumption is passé. It had, in fact, sunk to the lowest level of middle-class opprobrium, normally occupied by white bread and polyester, to become tacky. Okay, so good. Yuppies. Good. Meaning... While we can't force people to to spend or not spend better, uh -huh. we can at least ridicule them into potentially having better behaviors. Eh. How because often does that some, work, though? But when has ever the verbiage of tacky been positive? No one wants anything that's tacky. So if you want to label something as a fad or, eh, you know, you just kind of... It, it doesn't even need a word. It's just more like yeah. a... You know, really kind of thing. I'm not so much Machiavellian in my beliefs as, oh my hey, ends justify the means. Uh -huh. But if this is what it takes for individuals to look in the mirror and actually understand, hey, this is good, this is bad. Right. Um, but continue. Sorry. Sorry. No, I... I... Kind of interrupted there because uh, breaking news for something that will be very dated by the time this episode drops. Um, just for a moment, had like a news, uh, not a news notification, but a Twitter notification. Open Twitter to be like, why am I getting this? Mm. And then I went to my feed and uh, somebody that I follow tweeted, more of a Kingsley fan myself. Now, I saw that and thought, is this an Amos reference? Meaning uh, Kingsley Amos, who was a... Uh, British novelist. Um, I have his book literally on everyday drinking. That's what the book is called. Um, his son, Martin, was best friends, um, literally the best friend, uh, the, the bestest friend, you should say, uh, of Christopher Hitchens. And I just found out after Googling Martin Amos that he actually just passed away. Mm. Wow, 73. Um, cancer battle shoot well that's weird to think about given um his last novel he literally was like i see myself slowing down and that was like two and a half years ago and we did mm -hmm. talk about it we talked about inside story because it was it talked about it's kind of an autobiographical novel um anyway creepy wow. And weird wow anyway uh where are we? Uh, Yuppies have become a bore. That's one word for it. Advertising would continue, of course, to promote upscale consumption and to seek out people whose buying characteristics were thoroughly yuppified. I.e., they wanted to be the rich. Yeah. Yeah. Precisely. Mm -hmm. um, but the message would change. As one ad man told the Wall Street Journal, it was as if people were saying it's okay to be greedy. 
Where have I heard that before? <laughs> that now is definitely D class A. Or, or I guess day class A. Um, mm -hmm. There were even signs in the late 80s of a search for better and possibly more liberal values. New York Magazine, a reliable purveyor of yuppie, uh, two yuppie tastes, ran a 1986 cover story on the novel possibility of, quote, doing good. Or as the headline put it more aggressively, had it with pride, covetousness, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, and sloth? It's time to start doing good. Newsweek found signs of increased altruism in the land, and an announced two year and wait, well, wait, and announced two years in advance that the eighties, the decade most frequently likened to the fifties, were over. It's like the end of an Iron Chef episode. So in some <laughs> sense, our our story has come full circle. We began in the late fifties when affluence had suddenly become tedious and the joys of materialism had begun to pale. Then, too, middle-class commentators sought new values, which meant, at the time, new challenges to revive a stagnant liberalism. They found them in the gross inequalities of class and race that had somehow survived the general affluence. They discovered the poor, that is, the most visibly miserable Americans, and found in them a new mission for liberalism. To Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., who led the search for issues and challenges in the 50s and early 60s, a cycle is about to begin again. There's a lot of pent-up idealism. That will increase, and in the 1990s, we'll enter a phase that will be much like the 1930s and the 1960s. Psych. Uh, the possibility remained, of course, that the repudiation of greed, of greed would be as transient and superficial as the yuppies that immediately preceded it. There's no hope. There's absolutely no hope. If it's as cyclical as she's proclaiming it to be, I mean, this is this is 40 years after the fact, but yeah, 30. I mean, 30. Yeah, yeah. we've seen it. Oh, yeah, it's still not good. It's still. And yeah, I, I, idealism is running rampant. We want things to be better. We want government officials to actually put in some legislation and I guess outside of us being we the people it's uh it's we the shareholders yeah. so what do we do well i will say this mm -hmm. because next episode unfortunately is our last and i'm very much hoping to find the answers i don't think i'm gonna find all of them right. but because you are making a push for me to i guess discover something in these last what do we got 19 pages, I want to say. Uh, ish. 20. Hang on. Let me get my math right here. 26-ish? Yeah. I mean, About. I don't think we really need to read the acknowledgments. Yeah, but... the acknowledgments are... Yeah, they, they don't need to be read, but if you're anticipating me finding said answers or just simply making a push to finish, I'm excited. Stay tuned. I feel like that should have stayed in the recording.
Thank you for listening to the Falling Middle Cast. Our co-hosts are Ryan Mancini and Sebastian Shug. Episodes are produced by Ryan Mancini and feature music by Kevin McLeod. Check out our main series, Mars on Life, or listen to our other spinoff, Diet NIMBY, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.